Hello, and welcome to Heartland History, the official podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I am Camden Bird. I teach at Eastern Illinois University, and I am joined with my friend and co-host, Ramya Swayamprakash. Uh, Ramya, how are you doing today? Who are you even? Ah, good question. I suppose <laughs> I'm asking my four-year-old every day. Um, but I am Ramya Swayamprakash. Um I teach at Grand Valley State. Uh, I'm interested in many, many things. Uh, but uh, for this podcast, I'm really excited to speak with Dr. Alonzo Ward. Yes, Dr. Alonzo Ward, who is um, a colleague, a close friend of mine. We share a wall. He is a uh, assistant professor of history at Eastern Illinois University. Um, he focuses on African-American history in the Midwest during the 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, as well as the general history of race and ethnicity in the United States. Uh, specifically, he researches African-American labor history in Illinois in conjunction with the larger labor movements of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, we, we were having a conversation. He had an article come out that I thought was really interesting. And I was like, oh, like, let's stop talking about this and let's put microphones on so we can actually get this recorded because it was a really interesting conversation. So, yeah, Ramya, you were uh, brought into this conversation. I think it was a really interesting discussion. It really was. And I sort of, it took me, I wouldn't say it took me a while to um, get to the point, but I think what really struck me was the ways in which he was able to address the category of labor, like the mm. normative category of, of labor and what it means to sort of revolutionize labor. Um, I, and I thought it was, you know, now looking back, it's also just given that it was before the big university strike that you all had. Um, yes. was, I went back to the the episode and the article um, a lot, uh, just sort of thinking through what it means to, what labor revolutions mean in a particular place, in a particular time, as products of time and place, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but also what we can learn from them in, what are we, the 21st century? So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. And yeah, it's funny. I, I would, you know, we spent some time together on a picket line. Uh, and I, you know, I was joking with him almost just like, oh, yeah, we should. I feel like we should have recorded this after this. It might have changed uh, the way I, some questions I asked or whatever. But um, no, it, yeah, it is it, very timely in that regard. Um, yeah. So his recent article um, is called A Revolution in Labor, African-Americans and Hybrid Labor Activism in Illinois during the early Jim Crow era. And this was recently published in the journal of the Illinois State Historical Society. Um, yeah, and so it's a conversation about the article, but yeah, really covering sort of what was unique about um, labor activism for African-Americans coming into the Midwest uh, and sort of the unique labor uh, and social landscape that they faced um, in the Midwest and, and particularly in Illinois as well. A um, few housekeeping items, yes? Yes. We're both going to be in Grand Rapids. Grand Rapids, yeah. You, I mean, you're you have a big commute, a big commute for your uh, such a big commute. Like the two miles are going to be so long. Uh, <laughs> um, the Midwestern History Association's annual conference is in Grand Rapids on May 18th and 19th. Yes. Uh, come hang with us. Yes. Uh, we may or may not be drinking uh, by 10 a.m. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we got we got slotted on the 8:30 session on the first day, Ramya. So we will. 
be I'll be well caffeinated for that. And um, the, the the official schedule is up for listeners, um, and that is on the Midwestern History uh, Association website. Um, if you click on the conference tab, uh, it's completely free, and I encourage listeners uh, to get there. Obviously. Uh, <laughs> um, lastly, I would say again, just another shout out to Steve Leaf who has lended us the music. Uh, for this podcast that you're about to hear. But uh, is there anything else that we should mention before we get started? Uh, Unions are great. Labor is great. Everyone strike. I second all of that. All right. Let's make an episode. Cool. All right. Uh, well, uh, thank you, Dr. Ward, uh, uh, for joining us on Heartland History today. Thank you for having me. This is a pleasure. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, we're here. <clears throat> we're discussing your article, your recent article, A Revolution in Labor, African-Americans and Hybrid Labor Activism in Illinois during the early Jim Crow era, which recently appeared in the Journal of the Illinois State Historical Society. Uh, but before we maybe like jump into uh, this article, which really enjoyed reading. Um, Perhaps you give us a little bit more background about your path to this topic and and what led you to look at African-American labor organizing in the late 19th century. I can try to give you the condensed version uh, (laughs) of that that path to uh, studying African-Americans in Illinois um, and the Midwest in general. Um, I I guess, you know, like a lot of us uh, academics, um, it it got started with um, some work in grad school, um, uh, really with a, an article by uh, an, a historian, oh, this is back in 1972 that he writes this article. Uh, John Keeser mm-hmm. writes an article on black strike breakers. And I think the dates were from 1865 till uh, the turn of the century, 1900 or so, I, I believe it was. But yeah, it, it, it was, it was for, for, for Midwestern studies on black people, it was kind of a groundbreaking article, article written in, like I said, the early 70s, 1972, I believe it was. Uh, but it was kind of a groundbreaking article, uh, pretty important, uh, mainly because it just the, that 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 this was a part of history that was largely ignored, uh, you know, coming out of the civil rights era, 1960s, uh, uh, late uh, early 70s as well, too. And so it, it, the article fascinated me. I was trying to do some uh, just just some marginal research on African-Americans in the Midwest, just some just some general interest that I had. I didn't even know that I was interested in this in terms of strike breaking or black workers. And so the, the Keeser article really um, inspired me in, in many different ways, um, just in terms of what he was covering, the fact that he was uh, even talking about black workers uh, at all. And I had no idea leading up to that point that there were so many strikes uh, in Illinois, first of all, uh, a lot of coal mining, uh, a lot of manufacturer uh, places in, in Chicago, throughout in Springfield as well, too. Um, but but one of the things that struck me, and I guess one of the things that inspired me about the article, besides the fact that, you know, I was happy that he did it, first of all. Uh, but one of the things that struck me was that he didn't get a chance to really know who the strike breakers were. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he, 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 he concentrated mostly on the violence from the white uh, coal miners or, or the white workers themselves. 
and 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 what was missing from the article that it just it it, it jumped out at me as I was reading this. Um, what was missing was just you know who these people were, uh, where they were from, the black the black workers, the black strike breakers specifically. You know where were they where where were they from? Why were they here? You know and 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 what were the what were the motivations for them to come here in the first place? And so that you know that jumped out at me right away. And so I immediately well. I eventually ended up writing a uh, paper uh, for a class on black strike breaking. And one of the things that, again, leading me to this research um, and this dis dissertation and eventually the article itself uh, was I just wanted to explore who these people were. I, I wanted to give them some, some sort of uh, a three dimensional aspect. I, I thought that was the problem with Keith's argument or his uh, article that the black people come off as these uh, one-dimensional figures or two-dimensional figures, I guess, uh, in this case, um, that just had no say so whatsoever. So I wanted to, I wanted, I wanted to give them a voice. I wanted to, you know, again, give these people some depth in, in mm -hmm. terms of who they were. So that was, yeah, that article by itself really was the, 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 the impetus for me uh, studying and, and then eventually writing this article. Which leads us to the next question, which is, so what is hybrid labor activism? And I'm so glad you asked that. And, <laughs> and how did you come to this um, framework of uh, for thinking about the unique situation of African-Americans during this period? Mm -hmm. Well, under studying under certain professors that I had at uh, the University of Illinois uh, as a grad student, uh, Sundiata Chajua comes to mind. Um, one of the things he emphasized with us early on, this is something that I would never even thought of as a young grad student, uh, but one of the things he emphasized in the, the study of African-Americans in general was that there was a lack of theorization hmm. um, in, in terms of, of, of understanding what African-Americans had gone through, uh, this oppressed people. Uh, that, that were struggling to find their day-to-day -day lives uh, in the United States. And so that was, that was stressed and it was put into my head very early on, uh, this idea that we need, that there's a need to, 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 to theorize uh, about what mm -hmm. these people are going through. And so rather than simply telling a story about African-Americans, um, again, this is, this is sort of what I was accusing the Kieser article uh, of doing, uh, just giving the, the lowdown on what black people were doing uh, in terms of strike breaking, but not really giving the, the reason why this type of activity uh, took place. Uh, hybrid labor activism, I, I came up with this and it just, uh, I'm not kidding you, it probably just popped into my head one day. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not kidding you at all. That, that the idea of, and I'm not, and let me be frank and, and quite transparent, I think. I'm not even sure about the originality of the term itself that I use, hybrid labor activism. And again, I think I was looking at some car one day and then hybrid car that came up. <laughs> <laughs> again, I'm not even sure why the term came into my head, but what I thought about was that, 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 that this, the type of activism that African-Americans had to do um, in, in, in this situation, th this activism where they were, where they not only fought for their rights as workers, just like everybody else did. Uh, but they also had to fight as black workers, that mm -hmm. they, they could not just be a, a, a regular workers that were fighting for their eight hours or, or eight hour days or better working conditions and obviously better pay. Uh, but that these black workers uh, also had to 
fight for a battle of civil rights as well too so so all of this combined where they couldn't just be the average uh worker that was fighting for um uh their rights as workers uh they're, they're also fighting against this 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 ongoing battle this rising tide of white supremacy um and all this combined to make them wholly unique uh in terms of what they were battling against you know it's a it's a it's an article that does focus on Illinois, but it does talk about the Midwest as all as well, which is obviously what you know this podcast is 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 interested in. Mm-hmm. You you write that the racial dynamic uh, in the Midwest and Illinois is you know especially unique and, and, and pronounced. Right, you write quote throughout the Midwest as rapid industrialization and massive population growth created whole new categories of workers. European American workers brace themselves for the possibility of a chaotic economic transformation by frantically jockeying for occupational viability within the racial hierarchy. In the environment of an increasingly racialized labor movement, black and other non-white workers, with few exceptions, were forced to the bottom of the economic ladder. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about what was what were some of those unique realities of work for African-Americans in the Midwest and Illinois during the closing decades of the 19th century, essentially, like what makes this sort of Midwest Illinois story so uh, unique? Right. Well, I mean, the story of African-Americans in the Midwest, I mean, yeah, the uniqueness of that. I, I was thinking about this, too. I was thinking about your question um, that, you know, the uniqueness itself doesn't even it doesn't start in the late 19th century. It doesn't even start mm-hmm. in the 20th century. I mean, this uniqueness of the Midwest itself and, and why I think this story needs to be told or the, this history needs to be told. Uh, I mean, if you think about the development of the Midwest on its own, I mean, here, here it is. You have the development uh, of the, the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, uh, where there was a promise of, 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 of banning slavery, for example. And white settlers and some black settlers, too, in, this early, in, in these very early post-revolutionary moments come to... Illinois country or Illinois territory, whatever it was called at the time, but they come they come here under the guise of this will be a free territory. There would be no slavery. Now we know that there were black workers here that were uh, working as slaves uh, as early as the uh, French presence and later the British presence, mm-hmm. and obviously during the American presence as well too. So there was some form of slavery what they euphemistically call indentured servitude. Mm-hmm. That's a nice word yeah. <laughs> um, uh, during this time. But, but what makes Illinois, what, what makes this territory so unique, the Midwest itself, and then ultimately Illinois, um, you know, compared to the Northeast, for example, where, where, where cities were already established like Philadelphia, New York city, uh, Boston, mm-hmm. those places were already established. There were already free black people there. There were obviously white people there as well, too. But but yeah, so this the opening of the Midwest really offers this very unique moment in which um, you have people coming there for a reason. They're, they're trying to get away from certain things. They're either trying to get there for, for cheaper land, uh, mm-hmm. also for the fact that there was no slavery there for, for white people, and therefore they were attracted to that because they didn't want to compete uh, against that slave labor. Um, in those cases. And so, again, making the Midwest unique in that respect, um, those people that were coming here to escape slavery, <laughs> black and white for that matter, um, they were also adamant about keeping black people out of this area. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so what, again, 
leading up to uh, the 18th and 19th centuries after statehood, um, yeah, there's just this ongoing, this ongoing uh, uh, method of keeping black people out through uh, legal means and extra legal means in that case. And, and what really, I think what, what really starts to open up is at, at the at the end of the excuse me during the late 19th century um what you start to see is that there is a small influx of black people coming to the state um in spite of these black laws that are in place to keep them out and what makes illinois particularly u- unique is the fact that these numbers swell in spite of all the legality of trying to keep them out. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and, and white workers are quite up in arms about this. They, they had made every attempt to keep their workplaces and their state homo- racially homogenous. And so, yeah, the influx of black people coming to the state is quite, yeah, it, it creates quite a conflict uh, mm-hmm. over time. Yeah. And in your article, you actually go through um, several examples right. of of activism, both in rural Illinois and uh, in, in the mining and railroad districts, but also in major cities like Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I was wondering if you could perhaps you could you know, use this to demonstrate what hybrid activism looked like on the ground. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I used uh, in the article, I, I, I led off with the 1877 uh, Braidwood uh, mm-hmm. conflict, uh, which, mm-hmm. yeah, it's been written on many times. Uh, I, again, I just, my goal was to show um, more from, to show more of a black perspective, um, the perspective of those strike breakers. What's unique about that, I guess, um, in that particular uh, instance here, uh, which I think was the first instance where this happens in Illinois, 1877, but it shows the process of, of the, the, the very beginning of racialization of labor. Uh, here it is, you have a predominantly, if not all, European-American workforce uh, working in the coal mines of Braidwood, Illinois. Yeah, like like what was happening at that time in 1877, this is during the Great Railroad Strike mm-hmm. that summer, and uh, almost in, 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 in sympathy, uh, these, coal, these white coal miners go on strike for better wages, for better working conditions, or what have you, and the owners of the coal mining company, Allison Allison Sweet, uh, decides, among others, uh, decide to bring in strike breakers. And now, what's interesting about the 1877 uh, situation is that they had brought in they, they had they had other labor conflicts before. Three years prior, 1874, uh, there was a strike. They, same same situation. They they were upset about the conditions and the pay, and they brought the, the the owners brought in strike breakers, but they brought in European European immigrants. I I don't remember where they were from specifically, but they were not black. That was the important part. Long story short, they end up fraternizing with the the strike breakers and the cut and the, and, the, and the strikers themselves. They fraternized. They, you know, they, they probably had a few beers together when it was all said and done. <laughs> uh, and they ended up um, in sympathy. The strike breakers end up basically either going away or they they join the labor movement itself. Now, three years later, same situation. Um, the owners decide that we're going to bring in black workers. And again, they were betting on the fact that, you know, we don't think these European American workers, these coal miners are going to like the black workers. And lo and behold, it turns out to be true. Um, 
they they fight against these workers. They fight against these black strike breakers that were recruited from places like Kentucky, Virginia, all parts of the South. And that that in itself is also significant too. The fact that these black workers were coming from the South and that they were not Illinoisans. Most of them were not Illinoisans, mm-hmm. as far as the research that that I have. The vast majority of them were from the parts of the South. And yeah, and they brought them up, you know, through recruitment. Um, with the understanding that they probably didn't know and they wouldn't know what was going on. They probably, they probably, the black workers probably didn't even know, you know, what the situation was, that, that it was a labor conflict in the first place. And that's what they were betting on. And they were also betting on the, the, the racism of the white coal miners. Mm-hmm. It worked to perfection. And the rest is history with that particular strike. Um, to, to fast forward a little bit, what ends up happening, first of all, the white coal miners end up losing the strike. Um, they end up recruiting, the, the, the coal mining owners end up recruiting some of the black workers that were originally brought there from this, the, as strike breakers. That, that, that relation, in fact, some of the black workers end up joining the labor unions um, that the white coal miners dominated at one point. Um, long story short, however, uh, eventually those black workers eventually left town just because of constant racial animus and and what have you. But 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 that's 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 the initial uh, racialization of labor in in Illinois. In conjunction with that movement in 1877, you, that that very same year, you also have an all black longshoremen group uh, in Cairo, Illinois that go on strike and almost virtually the same situations. Um, but you see uh, part of what I was trying to show was this activism by Northern black workers that was prominent, will become even more prominent later on, as you saw uh, in uh, the, the Chicago restaurant workers as well too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I mean, that that's, yeah, they, that there was an activism within black workers in the north that took place that was at times at the vanguard of the of the labor movement um i also use um another example uh, of of how black workers during the 1880s and this is a little bit later too but they they are active members of the knights of labor as early as 1870 again that magic year of 1877 mm-hmm. they're active members of the knights of labor um, again, this was a biracial um, labor union, uh, progressive in their in their thought. They 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 even had black women um, in the union as well too. Uh, but that was again, again that was that, that was an attempt to show that yeah, these people were actually trying to be labor people. They they mm-hmm. were in favor of, of of many of the same things that white workers uh, were trying to get in, um, in, in the United States. So, I mean, those are, again, those are just a couple of examples on the ground of how this hybrid labor activism worked. Um, that, again, these black workers were also trying to fight for their civil rights at the same time as they were trying to fight for the same uh, work environment mm-hmm. as, as white workers as well, too. I, I did have one more thing to add, too. I, I should have said this one. Around that same time, you also had Chicago black workers uh, in the restaurant injury, industry. Uh, in Chicago, again, at the vanguard of the labor movement uh, in Chicago, in the restaurant industry. And they also tried to form uh, biracial uh, unions. Didn't work for many of the same reasons. But again, this is what black workers were up against um, with the 
racism of the day that they were being drummed out of these mm-hmm. unions uh, over time. Yeah, I mean, you're you know exactly what you're saying, right? This the, the, your research demonstrates that you know black labor organizers saw you know that the fighting for fair wages and working conditions was, you know was not simply an economic struggle, an economic struggle, right? Like right. it's a, right. it's also a civil rights uh, movement. Um, you find evidence of this, and I, I mean, it's fascinating to read about this. The the all black uh, the the all black state convention in October of 1885, mm-hmm. right? Where you're talking about sort of um, the, the African American leadership that's sort of leading this convention, is talking at this convention, right? They have this whole forum. It's on social and political issues facing African Americans in Illinois, mm-hmm. um, but like the fact that labor, you know, was brought up as well, right? Like as part of this movement i'm curious like how does the labor issue how do labor issues fit into that convention alongside sort of all the other debates that are going on um in 1885 yeah no that's a a good question Uh, i really appreciate that question too because what it does it gives me an opportunity to dispel some myths that had been i i I think they still permeate through black history uh, around this time say around the late 19th century early 20th century that african-american leaders the elite, if you will, or the middle class or, whatever, or professional class, that they were anti-labor. And my research, but from what I found, at least in Illinois, maybe this is maybe this is true throughout the entire country. But in Illinois, I found that the black leaders were quite adamant about their pro-labor stance and the position uh, of African-Americans within that labor movement was important to them. Now, obviously, some of them had more conservative leanings, and I'll get into a little bit of that as well, too, but some of them had more conservative leanings that were connected to the Republican Party of the day, which was a very pro-business mm-hmm. um, uh, 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 party at the time, political party at the time. But uh, I, I even singled out here um, uh, in the article certain black leaders, Frederick L. McGee, uh, these were lawyers in, in, excuse me, in Illinois, uh, in Galesburg, Illinois. Uh, Frederick L. McGee, um, also Lloyd Wheeler, and Reverend Charles Spencer Smith, they were a part of this um, 1885 convention, uh, and they were a part of a group of black leaders that were strongly advocating uh, for, for for black rights within labor. To, like I said, Wheeler and Smith were two of the more outspoken uh, convention delegates who strongly advocated for for more concentrated a more concentrated focus on on black employment. They, they felt that, again, up until this point, these black leaders very specifically felt that there was just too much emphasis on politics. Mm-hmm. And they were also arguing, I thought it was a compelling argument too, they were also arguing that because African-Americans up until this point, so these 1880s, this 1880s moment, they were arguing that over the last 20 some odd years since the days of Lincoln, that black people were so connected to the political party and that they were starting to be used by the political uh, by the Republican Party um, and their pro business leanings, and that that these men that's what they, they were arguing that that connection was costing them within the labor movement itself because a lot of the European American workers were starting to lean towards um, whatever their poly, party politics were. They were closely connected to 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 their labor. You know, and, and obviously that would be, uh, in some cases, with the Democratic Party, too. Groups like the Knights of Labor, for example, they were starting to break away from uh, regular party politics at this time, too, though. Wheeler, uh, in particular, called for black Illinoisans to patronize 
African-American businesses um, and to stay away from, I mean, again, they, they were very active and they were, they were very economic minded. And I think they stood out uh, at this particular convention too. And, and Wheeler, Wheeler tries to justify this too. Uh, instead of supporting, as he says it, I wrote this down here, instead of supporting such a man upon a, the agreement that they will take a colored man in the office with them as a reward for our fealty, let him take a colored man within the precincts of his private establishment and allow that man there to win such distinction as his merit and intelligence warrant. So again, they were very, they were very economic minded, uh, economically minded, I guess, um, in, in their stance too, in their commitment to economics and, and, and occupational empowerment for black Illinoisans was quite prophetic, I thought at least. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious, and when I read about that, I was like, oh my God, I need to bring this to Illinois history because I've didn't. i yeah. never heard of this convention before. Right, right, right. Um, I mean, how often, like on a sort of pragmatic level, like how many conventions are there like this? Like, like I'm fascinated by this history. Uh, this So this convention movement in Illinois is in conjunction with and comparable to the larger black convention movement that starts in the 1830s, 1840s, nationally. In yeah. fact, many of the, so uh, to go into the history of that convention movement in Illinois, um, yeah, this is not the only convention. Uh, this 1885 convention, there was an 1880 convention. And then earlier during the Civil War, there were conventions, the same conventions in, in 1865, I believe. But but they were but they were but these 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 conventions go back to the 1840s in Illinois, oh, wow. 1847 or 1848. Um, I believe the first one was in, held in Chicago. All of them, obviously, and this is and this is this is part of the larger argument as well as far as this hybrid labor activism amongst black people in general is that they were concerned with all of these all of these issues and they had to be so they were so so these conventions all of them dealt with the economic aspect of african-american life in illinois that's you know not even first and foremost but that was just one aspect they mm -hmm. obviously dealt with the civil rights issues uh of the day uh there was a civil rights bill that was being debated or eventually passed and then rescinded uh i believe in 1883 and that's that's what this convention is about here um, in 1885. So they're, they're up in arms about that. They're up in arms about education and the segregation um, of, of black children in, in public schools as well, too. So they're talking about that as well, too. But yeah, there's a, this is a very long history of, again, really starting in the late 1840s. These conventions are really the hybrid labor activism, you know, mm -hmm. really, or at least a, a hybrid activism that's really right, right there in front of us. That, that they had to, they were compelled to do because we have to get all of these things together. We can't just talk about one issue because we have so right. many issues that, you know, since we're being oppressed in, in, in this state, we have to deal with all of these issues. In, in, in your article, uh, you, you outline attempts to create biracial unions in the 1870s uh, and 1880s. Um, however, you also note that the sort of political will um, started to diminish throughout the 1890s right? right to do anything like this um so how do black workers shift their organizing strategies in the 1890s through the early 20th century it, it gets it, it, that's an interesting question that's a good question um and and that's really the tra the trajectory that i'm trying to display in this article in my larger in my larger argument as well too you know i i start out by saying that you know, even though black, it, 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 
the, the very first conflict that we see in Braidwood, Illinois, is, is displaying that black workers were immediately strike breakers in 1877. But that's not my larger point. My larger point is that even at that early moment of that attempt at racializing labor, that black workers felt compelled to break strikes, not because they liked, they, they disliked labor, that they were anti-labor, they felt compelled to do it because they simply wanted to work. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I don't, I don't, yeah, and I don't, I don't try to, I don't try to make it seem like it was so complex that, yeah, that that was it. That we just want to work, and we're not being allowed to work in certain locations. We had poor wages in the south and south and so therefore it was easy to recruit those black workers to come and break that 1877 braidwood strike at that very early date but what i try to show in conjunction with that 1877 moment and moving forward to the 20th century is that african americans were quite active in the labor movement again i try to show that with the chicago restaurateurs uh mm-hmm. the, the 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 longshoremen uh later on uh, again uh with with, with, with railroad workers as well, too. Uh, what happens, and so, again, this is, the, this is the trajectory that I'm trying to display, that, you know, by the 1880s, the 1890s, several things simultaneously happen. Racism seems to be getting worse, and I don't mean to oversimplify that, but it is. Um, there, there, there is this notion that uh, amongst white workers in general, not just in Illinois, but there's, a, there's this notion amongst white workers that black workers are consistently ineffectual, that they cannot keep up intellectually with the technology, um, and that and and on top of all of that, they're anti-labor as well too. That was the growing that was the growing sentiment amongst the white workers. And what black workers, even with all they try to do in terms of their um, in terms of their union activity, and it, and and I'll be let me let me backtrack a little bit too. It's hard for me to understand, even as I'm doing as I was doing this research, it was hard for me to understand how white workers could still think that black people mm-hmm. this time were anti-labor when mm-hmm. it was quite obvious that there was there were there were a myriad of instances where black people mm-hmm. were the ones that were going on strike and fighting for the exact same rights uh, as as white workers. But my argument is, and again, I hate oversimplifying this, but the argument is, is that the white supremacy of the day was so blinding, it was such a twisted logic that it was easy to see that these people, there, there's no way that they could possibly uh, 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 um, be, yeah, they, is, they could be on our level. They, they cannot be equals. They have to be worse. They have to be lesser than. And so therefore I believe, yeah, I believe that twisted logic of that period uh, enabled white workers to be blinded by, by their own racism. Um, and so, so yeah, leading up to the 1890s and leading up to the 20th century, uh, black workers, it seemed to me, at least in Illinois, that there just became a breaking point for African-American workers where they just said, to hell with it. We're going to break these strikes because they, they now they're, they're not, not only now are they working to keep us out of the workplace, which they had done relatively successfully for quite some time, really, really for the for most of the most of the the article that I cover, the time period that I cover, they have been fairly successful at keeping black workers out of certain occupations, mm. mostly semi-skilled and skilled positions that were higher paying. They had done a great job of keeping them out by using their their, their political uh, and social power of the day, but. African-Americans, their reaction to that was, okay, 
We'll break it. Now, now we will act like we're anti-union, we're, we're, that we're anti-labor. We're, we're just going to, we're going to actively break your strikes. In mm-hmm. 19, I believe the, I always get the, you know, excuse me, in 18, 1894, uh, Eugene Debs, Eugene V. Debs, who was actively telling his mm-hmm. white workers, his, 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 he was the, he was the union leader and he was actively telling his people, Hey, don't shut these people out. He's like, don't do this. Because what we're doing is creating a, 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 a cachet of black workers that are willing to break your strikes. But the white workers were so bent on on their racism, mm-hmm. they just said, nah, we're good. We're going to keep this an all-white railroad network, and we're going to keep it an all-white uh, uh, railroad union. And they did. And black workers, in, in relation, or excuse me, in retaliation, said, okay, we're going to come up with what was called an anti-strike union. Which is really a phenomenal name for <laughs> for a union. But we're 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 gonna so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna break your strike. And we're gonna I mean we're gonna brazenly do it, we're gonna openly do it. And and what this does really it, it does two things really. One, it really speaks to the the, the idea that, that black workers were trying to express these black men male workers were trying to express some type of manhood some type of manliness in the face of of, of all the perceived violence and and, and whatever uh, that white workers was going to throw at throw at them um it got but it also got them into the industry as well too and it got them in this yeah it got them in the door in some cases they they ended up keeping those jobs as well too so yeah that that's by the late 19th century early 20th century that's where we had gotten by that time that, you know, we, we make all these attempts to at this biracial union or even these all black union uh, uh, unions during the day that didn't work for a variety of racist reasons. And by the time yeah the, the, the 20th century rolls around, we're just we're just fighting to get into the industry and we're doing it in some cases, in many cases, by strike breaking. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I was thinking about that, too. And I, I how much of of the. Um the landscape shifts with the decline of the Knights of Labor, which was early on sort of so explicitly biracial. And as like, you know, post Haymarket, right, that right. union really starts to fall apart. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly don't know. I mean, like, are there, I mean, you have Debs with, with the American railway union. Right. And then, right. and, but even his union's not following what he hopes would be the no. policy. So like, is, is anyone sort of trying to <laughs> close that gap of like, we see this issue, we saw what Knights of Labor was doing, but like, this it goes to your point, right? Like, is there is this this break that happens that like segregation becomes the norm at the labor level? You know, Camden, I really I I, I pick I tell my students this all the time that I'm I'm one that I love conflict in labor. I like I like messy. Mm-hmm. I, I like I like messy history, <laughs> and I like I like violent history as well too. So it, it it's no coincidence that. I, I ended up doing this research because this is a very specific period in which white workers were actively excluding black people from the workplace and unions at the same time. Now, so 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 I say all that long-windedly because as far as time is concerned, as far as time periods of study is concerned, later on you start to see Groups like the CIO mm-hmm. and the, the 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 IWW, you see these groups, and they and they are active in at least putting up a putting put a putting a face on this idea of biracial unionism. That comes later, you know, in the teens, in the twenties, and the thirties. But 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 this moment, very specifically, yeah, it was it was in flux. 
it is interesting. I mean, and also, I mean, this is it always strikes me even when I'm teaching Illinois history over and over again. It's just the sort of industrial history of that state of the state is so sort of unique in the sense that it is it's it actually begins extractive in a, in a way that does not seem sort of self-evident, like how mm-hmm. massive coal mining was in non-Chicago, Illinois. Um, is something that is like too quickly glossed over in sort of histories of extraction. Um, and that most of this organizing, most of the organizing that you consider with Illinois in the 19th century should not in fact be necessarily in Chicago, uh, but in fact across sort of the rural areas of, of the state of Illinois. Like there's so many coal strikes going on all the time. And let me, let me say too, you know, you brought, actually you bring up a great point too here. Um, you know that's that's what makes that's what makes Illinois such a special case study, as far as I was concerned. Mm-hmm. That and I and I found this uh, through, and I, I always forget the historian. He's an economic historian. Um, uh, Watley is the last name, and and he writes an article documenting all the strikes that take place in the North post Civil War, and Illinois. Of course, Illinois had the most. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it was it wasn't even close. Illinois. And I said, this is interesting. I mean, so so the most cases of strike breaking where black people are brought in as the strike breakers, Illinois was like double everybody else. It was, nobody was even close. Hmm. And so that I, and this this goes back to your initial question, too. <laughs> <laughs> Way back to the first one. Hey, why did you get interested in this stuff? I was like, I, I wanted to know why that number was so large. I mean, because, again, this was in the pre-Great Migration years. Mm-hmm. I was like, wait a minute, why would they? I was like, oh, okay, let me, let, maybe it's because there weren't that many black people here at the time, and that if you brought black people in, that, that, that somehow this would upset the white workforce or whatever. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, Illinois is quite the place, and it's quite, yeah, again, if you like conflict and violence <laughs> in your labor history, this was the place to go. And so that's probably why I chose it as well, too. So uh, I'm curious, you know, what should listeners of this podcast, Heartland History, um, Take away from the article. I mean, what do you hope? What do you hope people take away? I'll try to condense this as much as possible. There's, there's a lot I, I want people to take away from this. Um, I think the bottom line. I, I think just first blush response to that is just that yeah, black people were actually active in the labor movement during the height of the uh, of labor movement activity at this time. Uh, again, I, I think African Americans in general have gotten. Of the short end of the stick when it comes to this this labor movement that this labor movement mm-hmm. is often you know connected to white working class workers and I'm like I ah, know there's a lot more to it than, mm-hmm. than just that so that's my initial takeaway you know in terms of what I want people to take away from this and and I think uh, in the article in my article I, I try to I try to spell that out as much as possible and sometimes it you know it rambles on I think a little bit in terms of what no I, I mean that. Uh, that it goes on a little bit in terms of the specifics in what black people were doing. But I did that. There was a point behind that as well, too, because mm-hmm. I wanted to show that, you know, these three dimensional characters actually gave a damn about the labor movement itself. And they mm-hmm. wanted to be a part of it, not just for the sake of being a part of it, but they wanted their due as well, too, in mm-hmm. in, in, in labor. Um, also, um, my intervention really, really goes into, you know, why strike breaking is a viable occupational weapon, an economic weapon for African-Americans. And that they were kind of, whether they were forced into it or not is irrelevant, but they had to do it because of this racialization in labor. Mm -hmm. They they were forced to do it. Um, 
that that it is an actual weapon. Um, and lastly, my intervention too, and I had to think about this as well too, because it's, it's, it may not be readily apparent, but I'm also going against this notion that African American men and women were 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 these that they were just completely victims, mm-hmm. and they're not. And, and 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 when I when I talk about this victimization, or when I was thinking about this in my large in, in the article in my larger project itself, yeah, black people black people during this time. This is also a period of time that's considered the so-called nadir of race relations. That you know, uh, uh, lynchings in our in the United States are at an all-time high. We're, 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 this this article also centers in on the Plessy versus Ferguson separate but equal moment as well too. So obviously, mm-hmm. you know, there's a national call for keeping black people away from white people or by legal means and mm-hmm. let alone the, the extra legal means. But 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 black people as that's what this article is trying to show as well too. It's like we didn't just sit on our hands and just say, oh, well, I guess we're going to be oppressed and we're going to take it from, you know, from 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 the dominant cultural uh, class in this country. No, they fought back on every, I mean, on every imaginable level, intellectually, uh, through through activism, through, I mean, through on, on in every facet of American life, they fought back on some level. Um, I even wrote this here, any, any notion of complete capitulation of African-Americans to the hyper-racist animus in the United States at the turn of the century is completely exaggerated. And so, yeah, when we talk about this so-called nadir, a lot of historians, a lot of teachers, or whatever, we they give this idea that black people just like, well, I guess we're done. I guess we're, I guess we're, we're going to have to suffer this. And and my research, again, this isn't hyperbole. They really didn't just sit down and take it. They fought back at every given, and not, and that was another thing too. It wasn't just black leaders that were fighting back. These were just regular working class people that were like, you know, what the hell with this. We're not going to take this crap from these people, and we'll break your strikes, and we'll, we'll we'll fight you physically as well too. And they and they, I think they did a pretty good job too. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for for what's been a really stimulating conversation. Thank you. Um, but before, as we wrap up things, though, um, I was wondering if you might be willing to share uh, with our listeners what you're working on next, um, what yeah. projects you have underway. Yeah. Um, uh, well. It's it's an ex- I'm expanding this project. Um, my 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 feeble attempts at manuscript writing um, <laughs> are, are are in motion right now. Uh, please don't cut that out. <laughs> my, my attempts. Um, what I'm trying to I'm trying to expand on this project. Um, and so I mentioned before that that this 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 really this article really kind of comes at the tail end of the larger project. Um, I go a little bit into the, the, the 20th century, but most of my most of my work that I'm working on right now, the expansion of this project, really goes um, uh, to an 1847 moment with the so-called Bond Resolution, which was an attempt by Illinois lawmakers to strengthen the black laws of the state already so the black laws that, that were previously uh, written and whatever from 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 illinois history uh, illinois statehood inception in 1818 those black laws apparently weren't good enough and so my project goes into that 1847 moment in which they said let's try to really eliminate the black population or at least limit them substantially and um 
my goal with this larger project is to tie uh, the political economy into this moment or these moments, I should say, 1847 uh, up into the 20th century. Uh, and I'm arguing that well, what I'm, what I'm trying, I'm trying to find out what the economic impetus behind all of this was. Why keeping black, why to keep black people out? Why to shut them out of, uh, of of labor as well too? And again, I'm trying to tie it into the political economy of the day. Um, the 1847 moment, for example, comes at the heels of what's considered to be the Jacksonian age or Jacksonian period. Or, or even more specifically, economically speaking, it's also the tail end of the market revolution in which uh, white America, just, just America itself is in flux. And I'm arguing that that flux caused white Illinoisans to react, have this visceral reaction to maintaining a, a racially homogenous um, uh, uh, state. Mm -hmm. That They did everything they could to keep black people out because they believe that they would be some type of economic threat. And so that, that's the basis of my manuscript or the continuation of this larger project that I'm, I'm, I'm basing my argument that, yes, this was an economically driven um, um, idea to keep black people out of, this, uh, out, of this, out of the state itself. And that, yeah, and this, this evolves into them becoming workers and, this, and they're saying why black workers would be a detriment to us because they're cheap labor and and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. So that's that. That's the that's the, the 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 gist of the entire project. That this yeah this goes back to that 1847 moment with the bond resolution. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. No one else in this conversation knows exactly about writing feeble attempts at manuscripts. No one else is <laughs> dealing with that. No, no one else in this conversation is two days late on a book chapter that was due and got an extension and. Still oh. has to uh, clean up footnotes. No one in this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> no. You might, be right. you might have me there. Well, well I mean, you, you, both I, both of you. It sounds like you're on your way to to getting these things done, though. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think we hope, we hope, we hope, we hope. No. Uh, hope. In, yeah. In seriousness. Um, yeah, we look forward to that project as it develops as well. We'll have you, well, thank back, you. back on the podcast when that comes around. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, Alonzo, thank you so much um, you. for sharing your time with us again. For oh, it was a pleasure. Um, your article is in Journal of the Illinois State Historical Society. Nailed it. Um, yeah. And uh, encourage listeners to check that out. Uh, thank you, though, Alonzo. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you.